Well, today, this will be our final sermon on this short sermon series we have been looking at. This was supposed to be last week, it's this week instead, uh, the, the final sermon on our short sermon series on what the Bible teaches about uh, the uh, challenging topic of race and racism. And this, I have to confess, is the, in, my, in my view that has been the most challenging of the sermons. Uh, and I'm, you know, we're attempting in this last sermon to sort of uh, deal uh, more broadly with some of the very practical uh, questions related to the issue uh, we'll see if uh, that is done successfully or not. But uh, before we jump into the two main points of this sermon, that there, I, w- I want to say this, that one of the challenges, I think, in talking about an issue like this or, it, you know, issues like this, um, in fact, most <laughs> issue, one of the challenges in any issue that has any political bearings attached to it uh, when we discuss issues like this, we feel like we get pushed into a peg hole or into a corner of a political agenda. Uh, and we feel like we can't agree on one thing without at the same time being forced into agreeing with a whole lot of other things that get attached to that one thing. We feel like agreeing in one place means embracing a whole agenda of things. And we don't like that. So then we can even end up reacting against that one thing uh, and end up losing common ground. For example, it's a very simple uh, example, even to say racism is a sin. And, you know, I hope we can say that clearly, boldly, without hesitation, without qualification. But sometimes it seems like when you say something like that, it feels like you're saying more than that. That saying racism is is a sin then can feel at the same time like saying that racism is the root of every sin or that racism is the root of every societal problem or racism is the only sin and or racism is the sin of every person. And so we feel like and then it gets harder to say that one thing which we should be able to say. And so we feel ourselves getting pushed into corners being uh, Uh, having agendas being piled on us, heels get dug in, ears get stopped up, hearts get closed, discussion over. And so as I said at the beginning, I've tried to be careful then in in how I talk about this issue, uh, not to be uh, on the, you know, my goal isn't to be liberal or conservative. Uh, My goal is to try to be biblical uh, and my goal has been to help us lay a foundation. It hasn't been to address every uh, uh, current event. Uh, it hasn't been to try to simplistically diagnose complex societal problems or simplistically offer solutions to complex societal problems. But my goal has been to try to just see what does Scripture teach us on this issue and let the Bible lay a foundation that we can then hopefully apply to the way we think and live and love one another. And so along, and, and so, but at the same time, there's got to be kind of a so what, I guess. There's got to be a so what. So what about all this? And so uh, this is sort of the aim, I guess, of, of, of this final sermon series to some degree. I want to address two very simple 
uh, two very, sorry, not simple. <laughs> I want to, to address two very complex uh, questions then related to these issues we've been talking about. First, the question of societal injustice, and second, the question of personal guilt. And uh, this, is, this might be a warn, warning, this might be a little longer of a sermon than normal, but I didn't want to extend it to another uh, sermon in the series, and so I'll probably be more brief than I ought to be in some of these complicated questions, but we'll do our best. And um, this doesn't, that, that, that the sermon series is over doesn't mean uh, the discussion uh, can't continue. First, the question of societal injustice. This is a complex question. This is a controversial issue in the church. And I want to say, I guess I should say, that I don't really consider myself to be a social justice warrior. Uh, and even the term social justice is, ends up being a loaded term with lots of baggage attached to it. But let's put that aside for a minute. And this ought to be totally uncontroversial. That God cares about injustice. That God cares about oppression. That ought to not be controversial at all. And I think it's reasonable to conclude that if individuals can have unjust motives and actions, then those unjust motives and actions can be embodied. Those injustices can be embodied into society in the forms of unjust laws and practices or whatever else. Our first text uh, here makes God's concern for justice very plain, very clear. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 through 12. Feel free to read along. Is, this, is not this the kind of fasting I, God speaking, have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame, and you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. There's two parts of that passage, what God calls his people to, and then God, what, pro, what God promises to his people if they embrace that call. And we see in, the, in these first few verses, is this not what God, the kind of fasting that God calls us to? 
In other words, the kind of spiritual devotion and practice that God calls us to, and this is contrasted with uh, earlier in the chapter, uh, the false fasting that is empty and hypocritical. Is this not what God wants of us? It says to loose the chains of injustice, not to tighten them, to untie the cords of the yoke, not to double knot them, to set the oppressed free. Not to take them captive, to break every yoke, not to pile on all kinds of yokes, yokes meaning burdens. And in this context, not just a regular burden of life, but specifically burdens of oppression. And God wants these things so much that, as I mentioned, the context of the chapter is that religious expression is empty, it means nothing, it's hypocritical apart from living lives of justice and righteousness. And you consider then, all the, in the second part of the passage, all these promises that are heaped upon and, and offered to the one who answers God's call to live in and seek out justice. He says, your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your guard. The Lord will answer your call. Your light will rise in the darkness. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs. He will strengthen and nourish you. These are quite a lot of promises that God offers to the one who takes up this call of God to live in a just way. And maybe... The best promise of all, you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. That is a a name of honor that is put upon the one who lives in this way and answers this call. Wouldn't that be a great thing to be remembered for? That man or that woman was a repairer of the brokenness of this world. There's enough brokenness in the world. Certainly we don't want to contribute to that. But more than that, we want to be a part of God's restoring it. And of course it's God who does the repairing and the the restoring of the brokenness of this world, but he uses his people to do it. So let me ask Two questions then to this call for justice upon the, the, this is given to the society of God's people. Uh, let me ask a what about question and a so what question. What about? When we talk about justice and especially when we talk about justice as related to the issue of race, the question, one of the questions that often comes to mind is the question of slavery. What about Slavery in the Bible. Uh, If God is a God of justice, why are there laws about slaves in the Bible and does that justify uh, other systems of slavery, race-based slavery in history? And this is a broader question. This is a (laughs) challenging question about how we understand and approach uh, the Old Testament laws in the Bible. Um, And uh, of course it's a complicated question when we talk about justice what that even means at all so very quickly I want to just suggest three broad concerns of justice in the Old Testament law first broad concern is fair penalties for crimes 
And this concern is, you know, the eye for an eye principle, which is not meant to be a principle for personal vengeance, but was meant to regulate how crimes were punished uh, so that crimes weren't over-punished, excessively punished, or that crimes weren't under-punished, but that they were fairly punished. Uh, That's the first principle, fair penalties for crimes. Second, equal treatment under the law. And that there shouldn't be favoritism or discrimination in the law. And then in the Old Testament, you see this mainly framed in the categories of rich and poor. And that someone shouldn't get justice under the law just because they're rich. And someone shouldn't be denied justice under the law because they are poor. And, and even in, in the Old Testament, it's stated that the opposite of that is true. Someone, so that whether you are rich or poor, you should get the same treatment, equal treatment under the law. And that principle certainly extends beyond those categories of rich and poor so that we could say today the principle of justice that whether you are black or white, justice means being treated equally under the law. The third broad principle uh, is uh, mercy and compassion to the oppressed. And in those days, uh, it wasn't Typically, the rich who tended not to get justice and not to be treated, uh, you know, given, treated rightly under the law, it, it was the poor. It was the widow, the orphan. It was those who had no power in society. It was those who had no voice or ability to fight their own cause. It was, uh, and, and under this principle, others were called to advocate for them. And help them and show compassion to them. And so the law of God then is, is, is a concern for mercy and compassion and generosity towards those who otherwise would maybe fall through the cracks of society or get chewed up and spit out by society. Those who would be prone to being overlooked or worse, mistreated or treated unjustly and unfairly in society. And so the concern then here is not only am I getting justice in society, but is my neighbor getting justice in society? And asking that, part, that question is part of what it means to love my neighbor. So there's three broad principles of justice And I want to give three quick interpretive uh, issues when we think about the Old Testament law of God. And then we'll get back to our what about question. We need to understand the aim of the law. And I don't believe the law of God was ever meant to eradicate the effects of sin of the fall in a sinful world. It regulates human behavior. It regulates human institutions. But it isn't intending to and cannot Get rid of sin and the effects of sin in a world. It can regulate those things. It can, put, uh, it, it can uh, try to curb those things, but only the return of Jesus will get rid of those things. Only the establishing of God's new heavens and new earth will create a world without sin and its tragic effects in society around us. And I think some, so I think the Old Testament law sometimes recognizes the scrambled eggs nature of life in a fallen world. How do you unscramble scrambled eggs when there is so much mess of sin and injustice 
What do you do with that sometimes? So there are times when the Bible regulates things, but that doesn't mean those, that things itself are good things, but it often regulates those things to keep them from becoming worse, to curb the effects of sin, to protect a vulnerable party from further mistreatment and oppression. And the laws regulating divorce in the Old Testament, I believe, are an example of that. Second interpretive principle, we need to remember distance. This is probably one of the most important, I think. When we interpret the Bible, we need to be humble and recognize there's a lot of distance between us and the audience of of the Old Testament. The Bible needs to be understood on its terms. And there's there's a lot of distance that we need to travel across to understand it on its terms. There's not only uh, historical distance, there's geographical distance, and there's cultural distance. And humility means recognizing, appreciating that difference in how we approach the Bible. And in the context of the Old Testament laws, part of understanding the distance there is understanding that they... They weren't meant to be interpreted against the backdrop of modern-day laws and societies, but they were meant to be interpreted against the backdrop of neighboring cultures and peoples at that time. And in fact, you see many similarities to the law of God in the Old Testament and the law of, of uh, uh, other nations around because it was the same culture and sometimes people... Uh, draw wrong conclusions about those similarities. uh, uh, But what those similarities do is they enable us to see highlighted differences between the law of God in the Old Testament and laws of other nations around. And when you see those highlighted differences, what you see highlighted is compassion and mercy and justice in a very unique way in God's law. In the Old Testament. And third, uh, interpretive principle is that we need to view those laws through their redemptive historical lens. And what that means is that in the Old Testament, the laws of God are given to a particular place and time and people. And so there isn't a one-to-one correspondence to our situation. And laws related to the nation of Israel are unique to them. And the laws related to the conquest of Canaan, for example, aren't directly relevant outside of that, but they are tied to that specific event in the history of God redeeming his people. And beyond that, the specific laws of the Old Testament, while they may have some principles of justice in them, the laws themselves aren't prescriptions for all times and all places. So that's a, that's a lot. That's <laughs> some broad overviews of uh, Uh, some things in the Old Testament law, but back to our, I hope that helps, back to our question, what about? And so if God cares so much, as we read in Isaiah about uh, the society of God's people uh, being just and not oppressing and and things like that and uh, releasing the yoke of oppression, then what about the laws in the Old Testament about slavery? There are laws regulating the institution of slavery. And in that day, among the people of Israel, there were two main types of slavery. There was the slavery of peoples of other nations, and there was slavery of other Israelites. And so we're going to look a little bit at each of those, try to 
view them with all in mind of those things I just gave an overview of. Uh, slavery of peoples of other nations would include, as was common in every culture at that time, uh, those who would be prisoners of war. And some of these things, as you read the Old Testament, are complex to sort out and understand. Uh, but in this situation, uh, when uh, Israel conquered nations outside of Canaan, uh, they, were, um, they were allowed to offer a provision of peace. And the result then would be that those people would become slaves. Uh, the alternative, I guess, uh, you know, to, to that was uh, war and destruction. <laughs> uh, and so... Um, you know, and within, for the nations within the land of Canaan, the rule was destruction as God's people were specifically carrying out an act of God's judgment on those nations. But even these slaves, uh, who, uh, they, these were certainly not excluded from, but included under the general laws of kind treatment towards others. And in fact, if one, uh, if one of these slaves, these foreign slaves escaped, the law prohibited them to be returned to their master. And I don't know for certain the reason for that, but it might be that the, the idea there is that if the treatment of them was so bad that, that such as to motivate them to flee, then they ought not to be returned to that situation. Uh, second, the law required that a master would set free a slave who was who that they mistreated uh, too severely, and so these slaves were uh, included in the general laws of the Old Testament of kind treatment. In fact, God often reminds the Israelites that they, at one point, were slaves who were treated harshly and, and un, in misery in that situation. And so the implication then is that they ought not to treat their slaves in that way. The second, um, oh, yeah, so in this first kind of slavery we find in the Old Testament, it was specifically tied to uh, the conquest and to holy wars that God called God's people into. And the sanction for those things does not extend beyond the Old Testament. And so then I, I believe there's no reason to think that this, uh, there is biblical warrant for this kind of institution to continue beyond the nation of Israel. So the second category then was slaves of other Israelites. And it's, I think, maybe even a little misleading to even call this slavery. Maybe something like indentured servitude is a better label. This was a system in which someone, whether by circumstances outside of their control or by their own uh, mistakes or poor choices, fell under extremely hard times where they fell maybe into debt that they couldn't pay or they fell into poverty or both. And so then they would sell themselves into uh, slavery and become a servant of someone else to pay off that debt or to be able to provide for themselves by working for someone else. And so in this system, they worked and they were taken care of and they were treated kindly they learned responsibility, and most of all, there was a termination point in this service. It wasn't indefinite. It had a six-year limit. And they worked off a debt or worked for a certain amount of time, and when they were released, 
They were released uh, uh, not empty-handed, but they were the, their, uh, the one releasing them was required by the law to give them gifts to celebrate their freedom and set them on their way to a good start on their own in life so that they would be in a better place to make it on their own, prepared to succeed in the world with their new freedom. And if they entered into that situation, that, that uh, servitude with a family, they took their family with them when they left. Now, if they married another servant during that time uh, and they left at different times, they did not take their spouse with them. Their spouse had to finish their time of service and so there would be a temporary separation similar to, you know, that, that, and that sounds cruel to, of course, but that might be similar to a marriage experiencing temporary separation doing it due to a spouse being in prison until their debt was paid. But there was nothing in that law that, that temporarily separated those spouses that prevented them from being reunited after both of their terms of service had ended. And so, you know, there were many ways in which this was, was uh, something that could be seen as very beneficial to society. Sort of like an ancient welfare or poverty rehabilitation system. And all to say, all that to say, <laughs> here's the point, that this is nothing like slavery as we often think of it and as we are familiar with it in our American context. And so we should never look at those Old Testament laws about slavery and think they justify anything like that and anything like what often comes to our mind when we think of the institution or idea of slavery. In fact, in the Bible, we find the case for the abolition of the institution altogether, I believe. In the New Testament, Paul gives commands in the context of Greco-Roman slavery, uh, the third kind of slavery in the Bible that we're not really talking about right now, but Paul gives very countercultural commands to the those who would be masters in that context. And in his letter of, to Philemon, he personally appeals to Philemon to free Onesimus, who was formerly his slave, and receive him back as a brother because Christian brotherhood transcends social norms and institutions. And so we shouldn't use uh, Old Testament laws about slavery to justify a system that we are more familiar with, that's more uh, recent in our own history, a system that was justified by racism, a system that was at least in part motivated by greed, a system that involved deception and kidnapping, a system that separated families, a system that allowed and involved horrendous treatment up to and including murder, a system that was perpetual with no liberation point and continued indefinitely, or, or would have if it wasn't ended, would have continued indefinitely from generation to generation, and that never involved any compensation or restitution. And perhaps even sadder that many slaves became Christians Yet their Christ-professing masters often didn't treat them 
as brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, we ought to just be honest about these things and not try to justify evils and sins of the past. And we certainly can't use the Bible to do that. That was an evil institution. And we shouldn't qualify that or add ands, ifs, or buts to that. It was evil. And considering what followed slavery, that what followed perpetuated and in some ways increased injustices against former slaves, we should at least understand that even today there might still be hurts, wounds, and anger about it. And though we certainly wouldn't condone any and every expression of that, we ought to at least be much more sympathetic towards that. There have been many racial issues and divisions in our country, but this has to be among the most significant. And you know, like I said before, I'm not trying to diagnose complex societal problems, but I just want to suggest that if race-based slavery existed in a significant part of our country for so many years and the second injustice of legal discrimination continued after that for many years and even after that discrimination didn't just magically wasn't put to an end it even continued after that we shouldn't be too confident that there aren't lingering effects of that in our society and so the first application i want to suggest is just a simple one i think that we should listen with empathy to the experiences and hurts of others. Listening with empathy may not be equal to embracing uncritically, but it certainly doesn't happen if we reject outright. We ought to listen with empathy to the experiences of others. And you know, if someone comes along and says, this is my experience, and it's different from yours, and you say, no, that can't be your experience because it's different from mine. That's what they're trying to say to you. That's their point. And you haven't listened if that's your response right off the bat. And maybe even if in the end you don't agree with everything, but you can't do that. You can't even get to that point if before you, 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 know, you don't even really take the time and the effort and the pains to step out of your experience and listen and seek to understand with empathy and with compassion. We are not to ex- dismiss someone else's experience just because it's different from ours. And many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in our country, many of our neighbors have a different experience in different aspects of our society. We should at least listen with empathy and compassion. That's the what about question And Well, we already got into the so what question, I guess, but the so what question. So God cares about justice. Uh, God cares about oppression. So what? This is a hard question to answer. In the Old Testament, it was an easier question to answer because it was a different situation for the people of God because the church and the society around them were one and the same. And so society should be just because the people of God should be just. And if society wasn't just, the people of God could reform themselves and be just and then society ought to then be just at the same time. But we are not in that situation. 
because the church and the society are not one and the same. And so when we hear Isaiah 58, how do we apply that to our situation? When we hear those calls in the Old Testament for God's people as a whole community to be just, how do we apply that to our situation? Well, first, we should live individual lives of righteousness and justice, and we should repent when we find sin in our lives, particularly in regards to loving our neighbors, particularly with regard to neighbors who are different from us. We should search our hearts, see if there is sinful prejudice or lack of love or hatred towards others. Second, we as the church, as the corporate people of God, should be just and protect and preserve righteousness in our midst. And of course, the church is a group of sinful people, but we ought to be repentant and humble sinful people. And so these would be the most, I think, the most direct applications to those Old Testament calls for justice in society to the Old Old Testament people of God. But beyond that, as we have opportunity, I think we as Christians ought to seek to work towards a more just society. But when we consider this question, that's when we often feel most helpless. When that what can we really do feeling presses upon us the most. You know, it's one thing when an injustice happens right in front of you and you can intervene, or it's one thing when an injustice is in your heart and life and you can repent. It's another thing to live and exist in an evil world. And often the result, when we see evils in the evil world that we hate and we don't want to be there, the result is a feeling of helplessness. What can I really do? We need to be realistic with this, I think. Not everybody can take up every cause of evil in this evil world, and we will not eradicate all evils and injustices in this evil world. And I certainly don't want to say we shouldn't do anything. In fact, you know, I'm very thankful for those inspiring examples of Christians in history who have taken up those causes and made a real difference for good in, those, in this world. The, you know, the one example that came to mind, William Wilberforce, who fought for years, at times nearly single-handedly, to bring an end to the slave trade in Great Britain. But when we're faced with all the evils of an evil world, when we think of the depths of the ugliness of for example, sexual exploitation of children and women, sex trafficking, mass incarceration, domestic abuse, child abuse, abortion, poverty, hunger, greed, economic exploitation, racism. Did I miss any? Probably. When you think of all those evils, when we're faced with all those evils in this evil world in which we live, sometimes what can we do? Sometimes all we feel we can do is resolve to live with a little more love and compassion and pray with a lot more fervency, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Societal injustice, our second point, you might be happy to know will be briefer, personal guilt. This is another one of those uh, questions that comes up in the issue, this issue of race and racism. And I'm going to be briefer here, briefer than the question and topic probably warrants. But 
I want to go back to our first sermon, and I read a statement from our, that our denomination had made at our General Assembly a couple years ago. I'm not going to read it again, and I, I read it because I think it's a great statement. It was a great thing for our denomination to do as a good step to take, but there was some objection in the passing of that statement to one particular part of the statement, and that was this, that it was a corporate statement which said, we repent of these sins that happened in the past, uh, that either happened before some of those people making that statement were even alive, or that some of the people composing the body of that statement didn't, sins they didn't participate in or weren't, hadn't committed. So there was some objection to that, and the grounds for that objection wasn't that the statement beyond that was a good statement, wasn't that people didn't want to see the denomination make that statement, but the objection was that you can't repent of someone else's sins unless those sins are your own because you aren't guilty for someone else's sin unless those sins are yours. And so this question related to personal guilt, I do think is an important part of the discussion in a topic like this. We can and at times should denounce the sins of others. We can and at times should lament the sins of others. We can and at times should regret the sins of others. We can and of course should avoid the sins of others uh, that we see around us or the sins of, uh, in the past Uh, and the closer the sins of others are to us, the more we ought to beware of them so that we do not learn them and follow them and be influenced by them because the closer we are to those sins, the more enmeshed in in them we are, the easier it is to follow in them without even realizing it, without even seeing it. We can become blind to them when they are all around us. But we can't repent, we can do, so we can and should do all those other things, but we can't repent of the sins of others if those sins are not our own. And I want to read from Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 19 through 20, and the whole chapter is, sort of gives the context to this, uh, but the question that's asked of the people who are receiving this message, they say, yet you ask, why does the Son not share the guilt of the father. That's been the preceding point that Ezekiel is making in his prophecy. And the answer is this. Since the son has done what is right and just and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. I think this is an important part of the discussion in a topic like this. The sins of others aren't ours and though they may influence us, they may affect us, they don't define or doom us. And probably in part this passage is meant to correct some false thinking that God considers children guilty and punishes them for the guilt of their parents that those children then have nothing to do with even if they're innocent, even if they don't follow in those sins such that no matter what they would then do, they're doomed because of what's been done before them. And to those questions, the answer is no. 
you are not guilty for the sins of someone else. We can and often are influenced to learn and vulnerable to follow in the footsteps of the sins of others, particularly those of our parents, particularly those most close to us. Hence the warning that's attached to the second commandment. We can influence others towards sin, and that is our sin if we do that, for which we are guilty. We can bear some social responsibility for the sins of others, particularly those very close to us. We can and should take responsibility at times for sins that happen around us if we sit by in silence or tolerate or justify or encourage those sins. Doing those things are our sins for which we are guilty. We can and often are affected by the consequences of the sins of others. But we are not guilty for the sins of others unless they are our own. If we follow in the footsteps of those sins, they become ours and the guilt and the need for repentance become ours. And I guess the point I'm trying to make then is being white or being male or being black or being female or whatever else doesn't define us and we shouldn't define others by the worst characteristics of whatever uh, identity group we place them in. And ultimately, though the sins of others may place specific influences upon us or specific temptations near us, ultimately we stand before God based on our heart and our deeds. And along with this, you know, we shouldn't attribute the worst of motives to the actions of others. Sometimes motives are clear by actions. Many times they are complex. Often we don't know them. We don't always know the motives of another's heart. And so my point is, uh, and especially in an issue as uh, charged, thank you, as the issue where we've been discussing, we should avoid both blanket condemnations and blanket absolutions. And we should consider our own heart and our own lives before God. And maybe, you know, hopefully in a conversation like this, when people don't feel like they're automatically guilty and then reflexively defensive, maybe then we can and ought to be freed to do more honest soul-searching. And maybe when we do that more honest soul-searching, we'll find things about ourselves that we haven't wanted to see before. And you know what? If we do find sin in our hearts, and if God's Holy Spirit illumines more unholiness in our hearts than we would wish to find or that we would feel we could bear, well, there is grace for us. Let me read a little bit more of Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 21 through 24. But if a wicked person turns away from all the sins they have committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live. They will not die. None of the offenses they have committed will be remembered against them because of the righteous things they have done. They will live. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways 
and live. But if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked person does while they live, none of the righteous things that person has done will be remembered because of the unfaithfulness they are guilty of and because of the sins they have committed. They will die. Verse 21, if a wicked person turns away from all the sins they have committed, no matter how many they have racked or piled up, no matter how deeply that sin is dislodged in their heart, when they turn away from their sins, they find mercy because they turn to and find a merciful God full of compassion and grace. God whose mercy outweighs all of our sins. We find Jesus, a merciful Savior, full of grace and love and compassion, who died for sinners. So I guess we want to end here. Racism is a serious sin, but it's not the unforgivable sin. Actually, I think that's a quote. I might have read that somewhere. So I want to give credit. Racism is a serious sin, but it's not the unforgivable sin. And knowing that, I think, helps us do two things. It helps us not drown in despair, but at the same time, it helps us have the courage to face what we might find in our heart, unpleasant as it might be, because we know there will be mercy and forgiveness when we do. We shouldn't discount the possibility that racism might exist in our hearts or our lives or our actions, but we can never forget the power of the gospel to dislodge it and cleanse us and enable us to turn from wickedness to our merciful God. And if we see sinful prejudice or racism or uh, unjustified hatred in our hearts, how are we going to face that? How are we going to confess that if we deny that that too can be forgiven by our Savior Jesus. Racism is a serious sin, but it's not the unforgivable sin. And the blood of Jesus can cleanse it because the blood of Jesus can cleanse the ugliest, deepest rooted, most shameful sins of whatever kind that we find in our hearts and in our lives. And so we ought to be able to face those sins of whatever kind that we find in our hearts and in our lives and confess those and in Christ be strengthened to turn from those. And in Christ, we can be strengthened to forgive when we find those sins directed towards us. Isn't it good news that the goal and the last word of the gospel isn't condemnation, but it's forgiveness and it's reconciliation. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for Jesus. We give you thanks that he is our Savior, that he came for sinners, and that he gave of himself, laid down his life, died on the cross, shed his blood for the forgiveness of sinners everywhere. And Father, whatever sin we find in our life, give us the courage to face that. And Father, as we face it, give us the assurance that we find forgiveness in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.